Did you have a good Christmas? Was it good? Have you haven't celebrated yet? You have something going on. You got family stuff coming still. Yeah, yeah. We haven't really celebrated a lot either. We had some interruptions in our schedule. We we had, had Christmas planned. I don't know six different times. I think for six different days. Uh, between Christmas and New Year's, and I think we got it settled down now, but it's coming in a day or two. Um, but we've, we've had sort of the pregame of Christmas. You know, we, we ate a lot yesterday just to get the stomach good and stretched and get it ready, you know, so we, we can just hit it running hard. Um, so this next Sunday uh, will be the day after New Year's. It'll be January 2nd. So a week from today, we'll gather for a special communion service. Um, and it will be part two of this little thing we're doing today, uh, another way, it's just this, this quick two-week series to help us kind of get our heads and minds and hearts kind of headed in the right direction for the new year. And so if you're here today and you're elsewhere next week, that's cool, watch online or watch it later in the week if you want, if you're curious about part two. Um, and if you're online and you want to join us next week for in-person, that'd be great because we'll take communion together and it will be, it'll be different than we have been doing it since we have been in COVID. You know, for the first many, many months of COVID, we didn't have communion at all because we weren't in person. And then we came back to person, in person, and we, we were doing a couple things different. You know, we, we weren't taking an offering, passing a basket, because we thought, you know, we can pass a basket. We just don't want to pass the COVID to each other. So... So our Rick Veith made us a couple offering receptacles that we've been using ever since. And our suspicion is that'll never change. We'll just keep doing that. I mean, I don't know why we wouldn't just keep doing that. Um, but, you know, you, your generosity and your, um, your love and, and support have you've kept the church in, in fine shape. We're so thankful for that. But, you know, when we came back after COVID, we started using these, these little things, um, the little I don't know, Mick communion or whatever. I don't know what to call it. It's a pop top thing, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, if we're going to have communion and it was going to be a problem, you know, I'm so glad that we had got to have communion. Aren't you? I mean, I'm so glad that we got to have communion together. And e even if it was this, even if it was this, because, you know, the last thing we would want to appear is ungrateful for communion. That would be, that would be horrible if we were going to appear that way. But I, I will not be sad to see these go. And so, <laughs> not that I'm ungrateful for communion. Let me be very clear about that. Um, will you be sad to see these go? No. no, yeah, you either. Yeah, yeah, we're awful. Or are we just, we're just awful. And so, uh, so, just to let you know, you have used these for the last time, I think. Yeah, yeah, you can clap for that. Yeah, yeah, you can clap for that. Yeah. We will not be using these next week is what I'm trying to tell you. Yeah. Um, and so let's, let's just have a moment of silence for the pop top communion, if we would. Just, just, just be, sit still. No, you don't have to do that. Um, and so next week we'll have communion at stations much like we have had in the past. But uh, we have tasked our Marty Jones, who um, over the last few years have She's worked with our, uh, some of our stars to bake our communion bread. And so we said, Marty, look, we, we want communion bread to come back. We need, we need the host that we like the most, is how, I think how I said it to her. And so, um, so if you could, uh, we, we want the communion bread back. But uh, what we need you to do is to bake it in small, small pieces. Um, we can't be breaking this up and sharing it that way. 
And we, we have some understanding about transmission, all that kind of stuff, but we still don't want to do that. Um, there are churches that were using one cup before COVID, if you can believe that. I can't even fathom that. Um, you know, post-COVID, I have no idea how they're going to take communion, but we have figured it out. So Marty has actually baked hundreds, hundreds of communion uh, pieces for our church. And uh, yeah, so thankful. Give Marty a hand. I hope she's watching online. If, if not, if not, this is, you know, being the only service today, this one is the one that will end up online. So we'll tell her to watch. Um, but she, she brought it in two weeks ago for me to, you know, kind of peek at and taste test, which I did while I gave thanks. I mean, I didn't disrespect the bread. And, um, but they'll be laid out in a way that's safe and sanitary and the cups will be separate apart from each other, but they will be hosted again. This is the thing I've missed most about communion is that the elements have not been hosted in the way that we're used to. Uh, communion is, above all things, uh, essentially a community experience, and it is about the body of Christ. And so when we have communion together like that, it is um, very much the passing or the receiving of grace. Um, that's what theologically we believe about the communion experience. And so all that to say, uh, we'll be leaving our seats and making our way to tables and it will be a, um, a, a new experience again, old and new again, um, new in a new way, but I think it's something that can survive even uh, spikes and surges and all that kind of stuff. So we're, we're really, really grateful for that. We hope that you are going to be present. If not, if you're going to be at home and be safe in that way, then gather your elements for next Tuesday, next Tuesday, next, uh, next Sunday. So I don't know why I was thinking Tuesday. Uh, I guess I'm just hungry and I want it sooner. <laughs> and so, uh, next Sunday as we, as we have communion, that'd be great. <clears throat> so just a couple of weeks on this strange, very un-Christmassy, but Christmassy passage. It's depicted in, in art over the years, um, especially in the medieval ages, uh, as Herod the Great and the Slaughtering of the Innocents. It's the title of it. It is, uh, I've never heard a sermon around it, uh, especially near Christmas. It just feels very un-Christmassy. Um, but today's family-friendly, and that's what next week will be, although we'll have, you know, kids will have their normal programming. But it really isn't about that event or the even, even about that massacre. It's about all the things that go on beneath it and what happens in the middle of it. And so we want to allow this passage to kind of shape and mold our hearts and our minds and help us understand where we're headed, okay? So we'll start with the way Matthew starts telling the story. He begins it this way. After Jesus was born, so it's appropriate today, isn't it? Right, 26th, which in Canada apparently is Boxing Day, and Josh can give you a lesson on what that's all about. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of who? King Herod. King Herod. Now, just a little history lesson, because you may not know this, and, and we'll make this very simple and kind of short. There are three King Herods that play a role in the life of Jesus, and, and they're all different people. And so when you read about King Herod in the Gospels, you have to know which one you're reading about or learning about or understanding about, but they're all connected. They're all part of the same family, Herod's family. This King Herod at this point in time in history, he's also known as Herod the what? Herod the Great. That's right. And it wasn't because he was great, because he was not so great. Um, there are some things about Herod that weren't great, but you know, it depends on which historian you're reading. But this is 
what we know as Herod the Great. We call him Herod the Great because he reigned over a larger area than any of the other Herods, especially connected to his immediate family. He had two sons. The oldest son was Herod Archelaus, who would be a ruler over a portion of Judea, not Galilee. And then later, there would be another Herod, also his son, His name was Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas is the one that you'll read most about in the Gospels. Later in life, he he ruled under Pontius Pilate, and he was ruler over Galilee. He was a governor, or what we would read in Scripture as a tetrarch, and these are the three Herods. This Herod, however, is Herod the Great, and he was in charge of the area when the Magi had their experience. And they had a question when they interacted with Herod the Great. And the question that they asked is the question that caught King Herod's attention. The question was this one in yellow now. Where is the one who has been born what? This is what concerns Herod. This is an interesting question to Herod. It's interesting to him because he rules over the area that would be predominantly settled by or inhabited by Jewish people, and because King Herod himself had some Jewish lineage. He had some Jewish about him, not fully and not completely, but some. His dad was a an Edomite, which meant that he was a descendant of Esau, Jacob and Esau. His mom, however, Herod's mom, Herod the Great, his mom was Arabian, and so he had a little bit of both in his lineage. He was put in power, given the jurisdiction that he had, by Augustus Caesar. And he had a campaign to eventually become in charge of the area that he ruled. He He had been given a small section of the the land nearby, and Caesar Augustus thought he had potential. And eventually, Herod led a campaign that would end up with a military conquering of Jerusalem. And at that time, then Jerusalem, all of Judea, came under the control or the power, the authority of the Roman Empire. And because of his military prowess and his success, Caesar Augustus said, you're in charge now. He became Herod the Great. The story about Herod and the Magi and what happens subsequently, it's not really just about Herod. It's about us too because we can see ourselves in Herod's life. He has a a family, uh, hopes and dreams. As evil as we would like for him to become, he's still a person and he still has a career and he's still moving forward. He's trying to figure out his life. And in all of this, we see our own story. In fact, this story is not just about Herod at all. It's about our story. And our stories are ultimately, my story and your story, they're ultimately about our identity, our worth, our significance, success, and legacy. Now, the greatest mistake you'll make when you learn history or when you read the news or you pay attention to somebody else's story is to see somebody, a person, a man, a woman, child, an older person, a middle-aged person, a a teenager, a college student, doesn't matter. You see some other person as other, meaning they aren't like you because of, oh, maybe their wealth or their choices, or their career, 
or their station in life or their, you fill in the blank, race, any number of detail about them that is different than you. We make the mistake when we see them as other than us, meaning there is a commonality among all people who are made in the image of God. That doesn't mean that you're just like them, but it does mean that in some way you have something in common. All of our stories, my story and your story, they're ultimately about our identity and our worth and our significance. They're about what we might define success to be. And it's different for everybody in this room, everyone listening online. Your, your version of success or what you feel like is important, all of these issues, and Herod faced them all too, just like we will, all of these issues show up in our journey or our story as it's playing out in real time. And they are really centered around the biggest questions of life. Who, who are we? What have we been handed by those who came before us? Where are we headed? Where are you headed? What would you like to accomplish before you're done? What kind of legacy will you lead? Will you give to the people in your family? These are the questions that surround these issues. And all of these questions make up some composite version of our story. And we answer those questions based on a few very important things. These questions are formed and are answered based on a couple of ideas. One, what was handed to you by the people who came before you, the values that you have, the, the ethics, your understanding of life or love or meaning, significance, all those things. What was handed to you by the people who raised you and gave you a sense of morality or right and wrong? All of that, what was handed to you? But you're not just what was handed to you, are you? You're so much more than that, but it starts there. There's a foundation that was laid by, well, not just nurture, your mom and dad, or whoever it is that raised you, but also genetics, your grandparents and their parents and their parents, and there's this long lineage. In fact, you are simply one in a chain of many that ended up with this moment in time, and here you are, and then there are choices that you made along the way that determine your values that are either same as or in contrast to or different than the people that raised you. Maybe you were raised in a home that valued one thing and you, because of the convictions of your heart or the failure of the people that you were around in your family, you decided my values will be this over and against how I was raised, different. Uh, maybe you are what we would call a cycle breaker. Because your family was, you decided you won't be. Or maybe you are so proud and, and just deeply indebted to the heritage that you were raised with and you just want to stand on their shoulders and keep the same thing going. It's probably a mix of both for most of us. And our stories are about all of these things. And they are for everyone. It doesn't matter what your name is, what your heritage is, where you grew up. It doesn't matter what culture you live in. It doesn't matter whether you 
were a part of an industrialized or a progressive place or you grew up in the bush or in the middle of some place that didn't even have access to normal things that we would expect. Every culture deals with this for two reasons. These existential questions that we struggle with were all made in God's image from the very beginning. His fingerprints are on you and every person that has ever lived and will ever live. And we all have, well, King Solomon said it this way, eternity set in our hearts. And what that means is, is, well, it's the very reason you asked about your grandparents and great-grandparents and ancestors. It's why you took a 23andMe or it's why you have gone on Ancestry.com or it's why you've taken notes about people you never even met that were a part of your history because you know that you are linked to what came before. And it's why you're concerned about what you leave to your kids. I don't mean money or land or whatever. Maybe you're concerned about that too. But you watch if you're old enough to have children or you're blessed enough to have kids or whatever. You have kids in your life and grandkids maybe. You watch their lives and you wonder, what am I leaving behind? What are they taking that's me that's good that's going to help or that's me it's not going to help? And you think about your legacy in this way because you know there is something before you and there is something after you. That's what Solomon meant when he said, God put eternity in our hearts. And so you wrestle with these things. In fact, at three in the morning, when you wish you could sleep, these are the questions that poke at you. When you find yourself at a crossroads in your life, and it could be just a crossroads of calendar, a new year, flipping a number over, or it could be because you almost faced the uncertainty of life because of an illness or an issue or near miss out on the road, these are the questions that poke at you. And when we answer these questions, this is true for all of us universally, we answer them once and we wish that they were kind of once and done and box them up, set them up on the shelf, but we don't. We answer them again and again and again. Now, if you're in your 40s or older, you know this more than anybody else. Because the questions or the ways that you answered these questions in your 20s is very different than in your 30s or 40s. Maybe you're answering it for the first time because you're pursuing a career. And if that's the case and you're thinking about college and, and remuneration and, and longevity and all of these questions about how will you spend your life, but if you're in your 40s or 50s, you answer these questions very differently. And so we ask them again and again. We ask them after we have kids. We ask them when we can't have kids. We ask them when we watch our parents and their own health demise. All of these questions. And these are the same questions that Herod had to wrestle with too. And Joseph and Mary and Zechariah. All of them. Why? Well, just like us, they bear the image of God, just like you. And they have eternity set in their hearts. And so with this in mind, let's go back to the story, okay? Jesus was born, Herod the Great. This is the question that gets asked. And so where is the one who was born, say it again, 
Well, King Herod knows, uh, pardon me, there's uh, one king of the Jews, you know, and because of Caesar Augustus and all his auspicious wisdom and power, he made me king of the Jews, and he knows who's king of the Jews, but now there is one that has been born king of the Jews, and these strangers show up from the east, you can tell, and all their finery, they look different, they're using a different accent or language, who knows? And now they say there is, in fact, another king of the Jews. Well, historically, what would help you to know this is that King Herod had some insecurity as a leader. And that insecurity showed up in a lot of different ways. King Herod had feet in two very distinct places. One was a very political and power-oriented world, and he wanted security, he wanted power, he wanted to rule, but he was also, based on his dad lineage, at least a little bit Jewish, but not a lot Jewish. Now, if you know much about the Jewish people, that matters a lot to Jewish people. If you're a little bit Jewish, it's almost like it's worse than if you were not Jewish at all. In fact, if you know much about the Samaritan people and the enmity between Jews and Samaritans, then you know that Herod found himself in a place where he had no home. He had no understanding. He had people, but not people. But Herod's issues go all the way back to Father Abraham. And so, this is how it really begins for Herod. You remember Abraham? Remember the promise to Abraham? God said, I will make you into a great nation and showed him the stars. And he said, this is what's going to happen. Well, Abraham was old and Sarah was old. Did they have any kids? Nope, didn't have any kids. And so now they're stuck. What are they going to do? Abraham says, God gave me a promise. I guess I'll need to kind of make this happen on my own. And so Abraham had a child with the slave woman that he thought, well, if Sarah can't provide, then maybe Hagar can provide. And what was the child's name? Who can help me with that? Ishmael, that's right. Had a child named Ishmael. And then God said, you know, you didn't have to do that. How many times have you gone ahead of God because you believed it was God's promise and you made something happen all on your own? God said, I told you it was going to happen through you and Sarah. And Sarah became pregnant. And well, she was going to give birth to who? Isaac. And from the very beginning of this family that God would work through, there is the chosen son, and then there is the less favorite son. Have you ever been a part of a family that had favoritism as its sort of original sin? Maybe you were a part of a family that had favoritism as its original sin. And the family fractures over and over and over again. And this was Abraham's original sin. Ishmael and Isaac, enmity, disagreement. Not only did it happen in Abraham's family, but as you know, it happened in Isaac's family, right? What were the names of Isaac's kids? Jacob and, oh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Why? This was the original sin for Abraham. And so Herod who is a descendant, he's an Edomite, so he is a descendant of Esau. Not only is he not one of the favored Jewish people, his mother is an Arabian who is a descendant of Ishmael. And so he finds himself 
not being accepted at all by the Jewish people, which is unfortunate because the Jewish people want a king of their own, and Herod did not fit the bill. Now, Herod, even though he is insecure and he's feeling like he doesn't fit, he still tried to do some things for the Jewish people in spite of all this. And so you might remember that when the Israelites, they were um, captured and dispersed and some of them brought into Babylonian captivity, the temple was destroyed, and then eventually God raised up a contingent in foreign lands and brought them all back home so that they could rebuild the walls of the city, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel brought a group back, and Ezra, the whole crew, and they rebuilt the temple. Herod came along about 20 to 30 years before Jesus was born and decided that he would pour life into the Jewish culture. And he began to add to the humble beginnings of the temple rebuild that occurred after that long exile. And so Herod came along and he infused money, capital projects and everything into Jerusalem. In fact, Solomon's temple, which was the finest temple the Jewish people had ever known, was, oh, it was about the size of, of half of a football field, our football field. When Herod came along, he had grander plans. In fact, by the time he got done, it was probably the size of two football fields, probably, probably four or five times the size of Solomon's temple. It was impressive and it was beautiful, and it was his dream and his hope that this would finally earn him esteem among the Jewish people, but it never did. They never accepted him. They never called him their own, and he found himself insecure as a leader in such a horrible way. In fact, he got so insecure as he began to finish out his reign that he suspected his sister was involved in a conspiracy and had her killed, had two of his kids killed. In fact, Caesar Augustus said, it would be safer for you, this was while he was reigning, Caesar Augustus famously said, it would be safer for you if you were Herod's pig than if you were his son. And this is who Herod was. And so with all this in mind, he hears that there is a king that has been born. Now, if you're an insecure leader, if you have fear, it if you have answered some of those questions about identity and worth, meaning, all of these issues that make up your understanding of who God is and who he made you to be and what role you play in this world, and insecurity is at the center of it, well, this is what the scripture says. When King Herod heard this, he was what? It's a great word, disturbed. I'll show it to you in a minute in the Greek. And we understand why King Herod would have been disturbed, right? We get this. We understand. He's a king. He trades in power and position and status. These are the things that are important to him. They might even be important to you. They might be important to you in your company or in your family or in your neighborhood or in your company of friends. He trades in status and he trades in authority. This is what he does. And that might be the case for you as well. When you wrestle with those questions of existential importance, worth, and identity, the same questions that Herod wrestled with, you will wrestle with too. 
And it doesn't matter if your company has one employee or you don't have a company. It doesn't matter if you decide that you would stay at home and raise your kids and be the house husband so that your wife could go off and do all the earning. It doesn't matter. You still have a kingdom. And your kingdom is where you find something of your significance and meaning. What you do with it, however, will determine whether you operate in the security of who Jesus is or the insecurity that riddles every person that has no stable foundation. King Herod, we get why he was disturbed. But then Matthew says, not only was he disturbed, but all of Jerusalem with him. Why? Why would all of Jerusalem be disturbed? Why would they be upset? Why would they be concerned? Well, the Jews in Jerusalem and all of Judea and those extending into Galilee and the other parts as well, they have a complicated relationship with kings, don't they? A very complicated history when it comes to kings. You remember in their history, they were at one point in time ruled by the judges. And then Samuel, the last judge, they said to Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel says, you don't want a king. They say, we, we do, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations, we want a king. And they say, you don't want a king. He's going to send your sons and off to war and he's going to take your stuff for himself and you don't want a king. And they said, no, we want a king. And so they got a king and they have kings that led them down evil paths, kings that honored God and still put them in political messes and all the while complicated relationships with kings. And whenever there is a, a shakeup, a new king coming, we all get nervous. Has anything changed? Oh, no, it hasn't at all. How many of us has tied our happiness to who's in office and who's in power? How many of us have decided that the, the, the very future, the fabric of our nation is dependent on who's going to be king? How many of us have allowed our heart or our mind to be disturbed because of the unrest? Yeah, I don't care which side of the aisle you fall on. The last 20 years have given all of us plenty, plenty of room to be disturbed. And Jerusalem was disturbed as well. Here, here's the word, okay? It's a great word. Here it is in the Greek. Terrasso, emphasis on the middle. That's the Greek spelling, and that's the English transliteration. Terrasso, say it with me, Terrasso. This is what it means to be disturbed, okay? Um, a lot of translations say troubled, okay? That sounds so much better than disturbed. Disturbed sounds like we're just one step away from a straitjacket, and... That may be true of some of us, but we don't need to be calling names out, okay? Terrasso, it means to cause one inward commotion, to stir up, to make trouble, to be restless, anxious, or distressed. It's a great word. Got any of that? Are you experiencing any of that? As the, the pandemic ebbs and flows, do you feel a little inner commotion? As you watch uh, political unrest, you feel yourself pulled one way and the other. Occasionally, even if you don't show it up here, do you internally feel stirred up like there's been trouble made? This word is used, I don't know, 15, 16 times in the New Testament. It's used when Zechariah is in the Holy of Holies and Gabriel shows up with this message. He's never seen an angel before. And Gabriel shows up before he says a word. He feels terrasso. 
he is stirred up. You would too if Gabriel showed up at your place. It's used when the disciples are in the boat, this very same word, and, and the storm is happening, so they're stirred up already, and they see, they don't know it's Jesus, they see someone, something coming across the water at them, and they're scared to death. Is this, is this bad news? Is this going to get worse? How could this get worse? I already feel like we're about to die. This is Tarasso. When Jesus shows up, Lazarus has died, and he meets Mary on the road. That's what Jesus feels, Tarasso. So what about you? Do you feel occasionally some Tarasso? It, it, it can look like a lot of different things. It can, it can look like grief. It can look like change. It can look like loss. It can look like turmoil, uncertainty, fear. What is it for you? It can come from a lot of things. It can come from, in the case of Herod, incredible insecurity, pride and ego, loss of status or position, fear that something is going to change and I'm going to lose influence or authority. This inward commotion is what's stirred up when you're asking questions about your worth, your identity, your significance, your success, as you watch your kids and their kids, your legacy and what will be left when you have to face your own existential mortality. Tarasso. I think it is a word for our moment in history right now. And that's exactly what all of Jerusalem felt when Jesus was born. I think the presence of Jesus can bring it about because something is going to shift. So it feels like to me what's being described here and that uh, as we finish the story next week, you'll get a glimpse of. It feels like all of us have been on a journey on a single track road, a very simple headed into one direction. We know where to go. We've been there, so we're going there. And we're on this path, and this path is, is very clearly marked and it's identified. We've come to a place in that road where now there are paths around us, multiple paths that we get to choose. And those paths, well, we're not sure where to go. Do we go right? Do we go left? Do we trust or do we fear? Do we understand how we'll make a decision based on who God is, who he made us to be, and what he can be counted on for. And our identity is at stake, our worth, our peace, maybe even our legacy. And when we get to choose, we're in that spot. Well, it's in that spot where Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Herod and the wise men find themselves. I think we're in the exact same spot right now. And next week we'll figure out what it means to go different directions. So let me guide you through a prayer and, and Josh and the team are gonna seal it with a song, okay? Let's pray. Or there are many of us in this spot right now, this spot of Tarasso, troubled or disturbed, 
maybe the, the words inward commotion describe it best. And our questions have to do with who we are, who you are, what you're doing in this world, and what we can count on you for. And so, Lord, as we stand at the crossroads of a, another year, and we wonder about what is to come, and what you're up to, and where you'll lead us, the last few years have taught us that the only thing we can count on is uncertainty. We're not sure what's around the corner. And so in the middle of that uncertainty, Lord, you wait for us to trust you, knowing and believing that you will never leave us, that you will always be with us. And if we will place our hand in yours and walk alongside you, that even when our path comes to this, this crossroads where there are uh, numerous roads in front of us, we can go forward, we can go right, we can go left, we can, we can take any number of directions as we step. That if our hand is in yours, we just need to walk with you. For you are the way and the truth and the life. So Lord, this week we'll spend time with family and friends. Some of us will be back at work. Some of us will have time away from our normal daily stuff. The end of the year approaches and our minds will automatically be drawn to thoughts of reflection. Where have we been? Where are we headed? Lord, in the middle of all this reflection and wondering, help us to rely on you and you alone. For this is what we know to be true. We need you. We need your wisdom. We need your presence. We need your insight. So as we sing these lyrics today and lean on you this week, maybe more than we have in a long while, help us to see your hand in it. Help us to walk with you. And help us each and every day this week declare our dependence and our surrender and our need for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We all say together, amen.